0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yargo. Macbeth says to Lady Macbeth, soon after killing his king, Methought I heard a voice cry, sleep no more. Macbeth does murder sleep, the innocent sleep, sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care, the death of each day's life, sore labor's bath, balm of hurt minds, Great Nature's Second Course, Chief Nourisher, and Life's Feast. Haunted by his bloody act, Macbeth now is denied the nourisher of life's feast, sleep. Sleep, can't live without it, can't act without it. Even so, it is also a condition of passivity, so eerily similar to death, so disconcertingly passive, so disruptive to active, sociable virtue. Today's guest, Benjamin Paris takes up this passage in a new book titled Vital Strife, Sleep, Insomnia, and the Early Modern Ethics of Care from Cornell University Press. In his brilliant reading of the passage, Macbeth indicts himself as both a violator of sleep as the restorative for the king's body physical, as well as a perplexity to the ideal image of the vigilant care offered by the king's metaphysical body. In turn, Macbeth himself becomes self-divided and denied the soothing balm of sleep. I'm happy to have Ben Paris here to discuss Macbeth and other early modern texts concerned with sleep and care. Ben is visiting assistant professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh, and his work has appeared in Shakespeare Studies, Modern Philology, and SEL Studies in English Literature. Welcome to the podcast, Ben.
0: Thanks, John. Uh, I really appreciate you having me here, and I'm certainly excited to talk about the book.
1: To begin with, can you talk about how this book came together? What led you to the conjunction of care and sleep?
0: Sure. Um, I guess the first thing to say is like most uh, first academic monographs, you know, this began as my dissertation topic, um, and I settled on it as on sleep as a dissertation topic, um, sort of in a roundabout way because originally I wanted to work on Thomas Nash. And uh, I'm not sure if you know this kind of minor pamphlet by Nash called Terrors of the Night. Um, It's a, you know, a couple of people have more recently in the last three or four years published essays on it. But um, when I was in grad school, no one had written anything on it, um, except for some very old, small, short pieces. Um, But it's a really weird kind of stream of consciousness prose tract um, that is really about like what happens to Nash and his sort of consciousness and his body as he's riding through the course of a night out in the countryside. Um, and so he's very interested in the kinds of um, physiological and mental transformations that happen to um human beings when they sleep and also to himself as he's sort of imaginatively, you know, composing this tract. So this got me thinking about sleep as a, as a possible topic and, and sleep mostly in its bodily registers rather than dreams, right? Because there's been so much work in literary criticism on dreams and, you know, um, deservedly so. Right. Because the dream narrative is extremely important in like, you know, Western literary traditions and and so forth. But um, once I started focusing more on the body um, and the kind of um, transformative humoral um, effects or consequences of sleep, you know, on early modern bodies, um, I remembered that in Shakespearean tragedy, both Kings Hamlet and Duncan are murdered while they're asleep. So you know that led me to think, okay, maybe I could get a chapter on Shakespeare here, and um, turn to Shakespeare's histories and tragedies, um, and saw that sleep and care uh, were. Often represented together and in close proximity, um, especially with respect to sleeping sovereigns, and this is the case um, not only in Hamlet and Macbeth and King Lear, which are the works that I talk about in the book, but also in, in the Henryad. Like, there's this great moment, you know, where Hal is watching his father sleep, and he thinks about the way that sleep he says has has divorced the crown from the head of many English sovereigns, and um, so so I. after noticing this language of sleep and care in Shakespeare, I just sort of then went back to some other, you know, both canonical and non-canonical works and saw a similar pattern, right? Where sleep is being represented as this paradigmatically careless state, which is how Shakespeare imagines it in his tragedies. Um, And that's why it threatens the integrity of sovereign power uh, in, in, in those works. But at the same time, I saw that Shakespeare and other early modern writers are also thinking about care as an excessive form of wakefulness that can emerge when um, people um, or characters seem unduly attached to uh, impossible ideas of virtue, or perhaps they are especially burdened by the cares of waking life and the kinds of, you know, human frustrations of distress and worry. So I, started thinking about it and seeing it as a kind of paradox that emerges, um, from early modern literary and philosophical investigations or considerations of, of sleep and sleeplessness. And in the book, um, I end up describing this paradox as a sort of biopolitical conundrum for the care of the early modern self and others, uh, in, in the following terms, uh, the, the formulation I use in the book is that to sleep is to care for the bodily life that sustains waking attention, but only insofar as sleep abandons the forms of wakefulness that promote ethical and spiritual care. So using that kind of um, formulation and paradox uh, as a conceptual foundation Uh, for the book, I then look at how all of these different writers in some way take up this same uh, early modern paradox around sleep and care.
1: Yeah, and part of your investigation is tracking that uh, conjunction back to Stoic philosophy and vitalism and the reception of those ideas in the early modern period how does the cosmological vision of writers like Seneca inform ideas of sleep and care in 16th and 17th century England? And what were some of the ways that that relationship between wakefulness and Christian virtue were understood?
0: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Um, so I guess the first thing I would say is going back even sort of before Stoicism in ancient Greek thought, um, especially in, in Plato's work, There is a lot of um, interesting material, especially in the Republic, that aligns virtue and the good with uh, wakefulness, clarity of vision, clarity of perception, and sort of, you know, sleep and related states are used um, primarily metaphorically, but to some extent, literally, as, um, you know, indications of a soul that is confused or being led astray in, in some sense. Um, And I think the Stoics build on some of those ideas or foundations, but what they offer is, um, in other regards, a very different vision of the cosmos and a different vision of care than what you find in earlier Greek thought. Um, I think probably one of the most important Stoic principles in the early modern works that I discuss is this idea that... um, volatile physical mixtures are constantly circulating and permeating all aspects of life in the cosmos, human or otherwise. And so this Stoic theory of volatile physical mixtures um, and the idea of of sympatheia or mutual co-affection, as well as um, the Stoic term krasis, which means um, blending or mixture, These ideas, I think, are um, really important in terms of shaping early modern views of sleep as a volatile, transformative humoral condition that can and often does unpredictably slide from a form of benefit to the body and soul into a more harmful uh, situation. And I think that... um, that idea is especially central to Senecan tragedy, the idea of volatile physical mixtures that behave unpredictably. And, you know, so Senecan tragedy and its uniquely cosmological framing of human action and passion in relation to corporeality is one of the major ways that um, I see this Stoic legacy appearing in early modern literature. Um, The other, I think, um, central claim of the stoics that i find to be really fascinating and and, and um, innovative is this thought that the cosmos is is a single living organism um, so for the stoics humans as well as every other physical entity are simply parts of this living organic whole and because of that fact we have the capacity to affect and be affected by any other part of that cosmic whole through its infinitely subtle blends of physical mixtures. And so these kinds of um, physical theories have important implications then for how the Stoics think we should care for our physical bodies as well as our souls, Um, especially because the Stoics actually don't think the soul is immaterial. They think the soul is also a body. Um, It's just a more rarefied and subtle type of body, Um, a substance known as pneuma, that's incredibly subtle and finely blended with all the denser corporeal matter in the cosmos. So, so these two aspects of stoicism, the, the sort of theory of volatile physical mixtures and the interconnectedness and mutual co-affection among all bodies, um, I think in interesting ways shapes the perspective of the early modern writers uh, that I take up in my book, especially with respect to how they're thinking about the physical transformations of sleep. Um, And also, I think um, for the Stoics, sleep itself is an important and and, and interesting moment uh, because it relaxes the perceptive tension that animates thought and action in all living bodies. Um, But at the same time, for living beings, sleep harmonizes their soul. It restores it and places it uh, into a kind of um, attunement with the rational motions of the pneuma that form the cosmic web of cross caus- of causation uh, that spreads across and holds together the entire universe. So this means then um, that for the Stoics, sleep is a form of care that restores and reattunes the human soul in accordance with these cosmic foundations. And, all of this is um, in Stoic thought and in my book, um, closely related to the school's uh, sort of first principle of ethical theory, which is called oikeiosis. And oikeiosis is a word that doesn't have a precise English translation. It has been translated as um, dearness, affiliation, attachment. Uh, belonging. And these are all senses that are included in the word. It's related to the Greek word for home, oikos. And oikosis describes for the Stoics, the first impulse of all living beings to sense and care for their own physical constitutions as embodied creatures. And various Stoic writings from the ancient world actually argue that oikosis continues even while we sleep, because the rational motions of the pneuma are sort of uh, never ceasing and always in some way affecting bodies in the cosmos. So the living being is always exercising its most basic function of caring for itself um, as a physically constituted being, even in this sort of reduced minimal form. Um, So that's the kind of framework uh, that I sort of draw on from ancient Stoicism and see as being in various ways, you know, adapted or modified by early modern writers. And and I think um to get to your question about Christian virtue, you know, one reason why this stoic model of sleeping care is so striking um as it is taken up and sort of reactivated and rethought in early modern literature is that it differs starkly from what I see as a Christian political theological treatment of sleep. Um not to mention this Longer tradition in in ethics, you know, in accordance with Plato that I mentioned earlier. Um, But this tradition in in Western uh, Christian political theology that aligns sleep with ethical or spiritual peril. So uh, thinkers like Paul and Augustine are good examples here, um, as well as the humanist thinkers like Erasmus and Luther who endorsed a model of constant vigilance and um, care uh, that protected against sleep because it saw sleep as a moment of carelessness, of paradigmatic carelessness that exposed us to the workings of the devil. So the Stoic alternative to these ways of thinking about sleep and ethical care is something that I think early modern writers find very appealing insofar as they are in some sense, beginning to tire of those humanist paradigms through which they were educated. Um, So in the book, I actually use the phrase humanist fatigue uh, to describe what I see as a sense of weariness um, regarding the moral psychologies of Pauline and Augustinian political theology and Renaissance humanism, all of which emphasize a mutually sustaining relationship between wakefulness and the good, or vigilance and virtue.
1: Maybe this would be a good time to turn to um, a distinction that you draw on um, what I understood to be a consensus about um, Aristotle, which has largely been shaped by the work of Agamben, that uh, there is bios and zoe, bios being biological life, zoe being the ethical Um, political life, and one of the things I took from your book was that not only was um, Aristotle's thinking um, kind of more nuanced and and complex than than has often been represented on the issue, but that the the Stoics uh, exploit this to an even larger degree and are thinking about the organism's life as uh, inviting us to think ethically, and that would include sleep as a um, window into ethical thinking. Can you uh, kind of spell, uh, explain that for us?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you, I, I love the way you put it that um, uh, for the Stoics, uh, m- biological life itself, <laughs> um, does things that are ethical, that are <laughs> ethically meaningful, would be one way of describing it. Um, to sort of use the the, the philosophical and conceptual language, uh, well, first, it ties back, I think, to some of what you were mentioning regarding um, Agamben and Agamben's reading of Aristotle, right? Um, so it's um, Zoe, or natural life, according to Agamben, um, is... Uh, essentially lacking in what we would say philosophically uh lacking in normative significance um and the realm of law and politics or or bios um uh, according to agamben is um that for are those forms of human life that uh, are shaped um by norms and um that reading of of aristotle as being a thinker who draws these two spheres apart um, and does so in a way that for agamben is is a clear indication of the metaphysics of sovereignty and of the form of the inclusionary exclusion that that view of aristotle is largely based on his reading of of Arendt, um, and in the case of Arendt, that too is a reading of Aristotle. Um, and as I started like looking into things, I found that um, Arendt and others um, have been challenged on this reading of Aristotle and that, in fact, there are some historians of philosophy and um, scholars of ancient Greek thought who argue that um, we should not think of Aristotle as arguing for a kind of strict separation between these spheres, but actually a more um, natural development of Bios out of Zoe. Um, Now, you know, some people who read Agamben would say that, or some readings of Agamben would say that Agamben does allow for that possibility. But I I, I don't know. Personally, the way I understand things, I, I think Agamben, you know, as Agamben reads everything, he wants to understand um, the entire history of the West, Western thought, through this kind of metaphysical structure, which for him is related to sovereignty and biopolitics in this way. Um, and along the lines you were suggesting, I think that the Stoics, even more than Aristotle, conceive of um, a kind of direct route from biological life or zoe into uh, normativity. Um And they do so basically by suggesting that um, biological life itself um, posits norms and forms of value. And uh, in this regard, uh, in the book, I argue that the Stoics are a kind of ancient precursor to the biopolitical thought of uh, Georges Canguilm, who was one of Foucault's students and who was very responsible for influencing. Foucault's theory of biopower. But uh, Kangeum, in his book, The Normal and the Pathological, thinks about normativity in this broad and rich sense, which is actually uh, coincidentally the way that most philosophers think about normativity. Um, And he has this idea of um, vital norms as the functional foundation of life um, that are constantly remade, by the living organism, including humans. And so these biological norms become malleable sites of agency that respond to individual and social forms of influence, but they draw their inherent power from what Kang describes as man's functional plasticity, um, which is linked to this idea of vital normativity. And so Kang also explicitly aligns this idea. Um, with ancient thought, because he says that um, these physiological constants or vital norms should be understood as virtues or powers uh, of the living organism, virtues in the old sense of the word, right, which combines the idea of capacity or power with function. So all of this is to say that what my book is trying to recover, both in ancient Stoic thought and its um, sort of ethico-biological theories, um, both from Stoic thought and uh, from Kangeum's thought, uh, a way of understanding ethical normativity in relationship to the living body uh, that is very different from the uh, Agambenian metaphysics of sovereignty. And what I see is almost a kind of stranglehold that Agamben has had in early modern studies uh, in, insofar as I think most people who are working on political theology, questions of fair life, sovereign power, have, have really been influenced and shaped by Agamben in this regard. And, and as you mentioned, by Agamben's reading of Aristotle. Um, so, yeah.
1: Oh, excellent. And, and I would like to just briefly go back and say, I think I got the, the two terms uh, mixed up there in my question. Um, Zoe being biological or natural life, and that's right. bios being ethico-political life. So for those listening along, that's I'm right, or for any uh, confusion there. Um, in your second chapter, uh, you turn to Jasper Haywood, uh, a fascinating Elizabethan translator and Jesuit convert. Uh, you look at Haywood's translation of Seneca's Tragedy, uh, Hercules uh, Hercules Furens as an uh, Furens as an exploration of sleep as a form of self-care as well as care extending outward to the world. who was Haywood and how did he carry forward and complicate stoic thought about sleep and care?
0: right great so um. Yeah. So as you mentioned, Haywood was a Catholic and he, he ended up becoming a Jesuit priest uh, at, at, at a certain point in his life. Um, he became a fellow at Oxford. I think the he had two different stints. And I think the first one, he was quite young um, in his teens. Um, and then he left and then he came back. Um, but around 1581, he got kicked out of Oxford and exiled from England because um, he was loyal to Mary Tudor and um, he uh, refused to back down on his Catholic convictions, right? And so he was, he was exiled on pain of death. Um, also, interestingly enough, he was John Donne's uncle. I don't know if you knew that, but you know he's got some you know, connections to uh, English literature in that regard, too. But um, for my purposes, what's most important about Haywood is that before he was exiled from England, and while he was a fellow at Oxford, he started translating and actually completed translating three of Seneca's tragedies, um, into English for the first time. And these tragedies as you and any other early modernist who works on drama will know were part of that Thomas Newton edition called Seneca, his 10 tragedies, you know, that, that influenced so many English playwrights. Um, so Haywood was responsible for three of these translations: um, Troas, Thaestes, and Hercules Furens. Um, so, while it also interestingly enough, while you know, I focus on Hercules Furens in the book, that's the kind of reading at the core of the first chapter, uh, or the second chapter, sorry. But um, Haywood uh, wrote it, uh, in his translation of Thaestes this really amazing preface in which he imagines himself falling asleep and he tells the readers he's falling asleep at his desk at night and his head is is sort of um, collapses onto his copy, uh, his Latin copy of Seneca. And while he's asleep, Seneca's ghost visits him in a dream and tells him more or less great work on these translations. Uh, I want you to keep it up. Um, you know, so keep laboring away. Sorry, if only go ahead.
1: we were also haunted by <laughs> the writers that we work with, right?
0: Seriously, I know you, there would be nothing greater than having that vote of confidence, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, anyway, uh, so, so anyway, um, so 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 I, you know, when I found this when I was in grad school and starting to work on Haywood, you know, thinking about this scene, it was it was like manna in a sense because it showed that. I thought Heywood was clearly thinking about some interesting connections between sleep and Seneca, um, and of course in Hercules Furens that's really important because sleep and these questions about ethics and ethical care are really at the center of the tragedy. Um, because in the play, um, you know Hercules comes back from the underworld and um, he's uh, struck by madness which is usually attributed to Juno, right? And seen as a kind of, um, which, which, which is true to some extent, right? That Juno is responsible because she sends this cosmic madness to overtake Hercules. He murders his wife and children and then suddenly collapses and falls asleep. And there's this long passage where the chorus describes sleep in these very lyrical, poetic terms, but also um, emphasizes the ways that sleep is slowly restoring sanity to Hercules, right. And bringing calm to his impassioned soul. Um, and so in the book, I argue that at this moment, Seneca is drawing on the ancient stoic theory of oikiosis, which I mentioned earlier to suggest that sleep is bringing a kind of cosmic therapy, you know, to, to Hercules. But, um, and, and I think uh you know, this also appears, um, uh, sorry, this, this idea of Hercules sleeping in connection to oikosis you know, is, is, is in these earlier Stoic texts. Um, but I also argue that Hercules himself bears some degree of causal responsibility for his fall into madness. And the reason why is because Seneca clearly indicates that Hercules has refused to sleep, um, even though he's been in the underworld for like three straight days. Um, so in a way, what I think the play is really about is showing how Hercules is making this ethical mistake, a mistake around the ethics of self-care because he's refusing to care for this mortal physical life that is part of his being. Um, and in Stoic thought that physical life is what grounds oikiosis, right? And so it's the first principle of ethical care. Um, so yeah. That would be, uh, I guess, the way that I see Haywood's translation. Um, in a sense, giving almost a kind of blueprint for later writers who are thinking about sleep, because you know, in um, in in the works that I discuss by Shakespeare, Spencer, and Milton, there are very explicit. References to Hercules and to Hercules Furens in all of these works, you know, like Hamlet, um, is comparing his father to Hercules at various moments. Um, uh, King Lear is, um, a play that's quite clearly modeled on Hercules madness and rage. And both Robert Biola and Gordon Braden have made this argument. Um, meanwhile, um, Milton, uh, describes, uh, Adam and Eve being shorn of their virtue, uh, during the fall as the, um, as being akin to the moment when Herculean Samson, um, the biblical Samson, uh, is shorn of his hair by Delilah. Right. So there, um, and then also, uh, Red Cross Knight, I don't know if you'll remember, but when he's fighting, um, against the dragon, um, and the dragon superheats his armor, Spencer has this long stanza that compares that to um, the other Senecan tragedy, Hercules Ateus, in which Hercules is poisoned, right? And the tunic collapses into his body and he starts to pull his body apart because he he, he can't get the tunic off. So I saw all of these, you know, um, direct allusions between these central characters and Hercules um, as also being part of what was informing these writers views of sleep we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see we could not but she did and in the end what will i become
1: senwa saga
0: Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Right. Hercules is not usually one we think of in terms of sleep. We think of him in terms of um, virtuous accomplishments, heroism, tirelessness. And what I'm arguing is that there's actually this kind of alternate literary history of the somnolent Hercules, um, which is recoverable in Stoic texts and which feeds directly into all of these early modern works.
1: Yeah, let's turn to uh, the, the figures of, of um, sleeping kings in these, these texts that you're looking at um, Hamlet, uh, Macbeth, and King Lear. And uh, the questions that the sleep of the king poses for this um, political theological discourse of vigilant care. You know, the king is father and ruler, always awake to protect the larger polity. Um, what do those plays have to say about sleep and care?
0: Yeah, absolutely, that's right. Um the the whole theory of the king's two bodies, you know, is is premised on this idea that the king has to always care for the body politic along with caring for, you know, his body natural. Um and uh like in in Ernst Kantorowicz's um, you know, King's Two Bodies that that massive tome that's so important in early modern studies. Um there is a really interesting series of footnotes that talks about this um, figure in um, medieval tracts known as the Rex Ex Somnus, or the king outside of sleep. And so Kantorowicz is um, sort of suggesting that this idea feeds directly into the early modern variation, um, you know, in thinkers like Plowden and Koch and, 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 and so forth, of the king's two bodies. Um, And then also uh, James I argues in some of his political writings that the king must embody what he calls an (laughs) ever-wakarif, this is great Scottish (laughs) formulation, ever-wakarif or or ever-waking form of vigilant care for the kingdom and even be prepared to suffer greatly under that burden. And he actually compares it to the suffering of Christ under, under the crown of thorny cares. So all of this is to say that you know, this is all the kind of um, these are the political theological fictions that I think Shakespeare is taking aim at in these tragedies, um, because he's using the conditions of sovereign sleep and insomnia, insofar as they affect primarily the body natural, to suggest that the bond or the union of the king's two bodies, um, and that sort of metaphysical unity, is itself compromised through these physical conditions, right? So in this way, I think Shakespeare is challenging the political theological fiction of the king's two bodies and this implication that the monarch must remain always vigilant because of course the monarch too is a human and humans in their physical creaturely uh, being must sleep. So Shakespeare's drawing attention to this biological fact uh, and to The role it plays in the life of sleeping kings um, whose somnolence is in some way, I think, meaningfully connected to their tragedies. Um, First in Hamlet and Macbeth, I think Shakespeare's really emphasizing the perils of sleep and insomnia through a Stoic-inspired emphasis on these volatile physical mixtures and the kind of pestilent environmental influence that comes about, uh, with nightfall. And he, he does this, I think, you know, um, in, in, in the, the ghost, uh, King Hamlet's ghosts, um, speech to Prince Hamlet sort of describes those, those physical transformations in, in such terms. And then Lady Macbeth's speech, um, when she imagines, you know, sort of summoning these, um, sort of venomous, (laughs) you know, nocturnal, uh, substances and, 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 and forms of influence to kind of, um, pollute and occlude the scene of, uh, Macbeth's murder of Duncan. Um, all of this I think is drawing on the kind of poetics and also philosophical underpinnings of and tragedy when, um, Kings Hamlet and Duncan are murdered. Um, And then in King Lear, I think Shakespeare's up to something slightly different. I mean, he's also interested in volatility of physical mixtures, which we see, you know, when Lear is out on the heath and suffering madness. But what the play ultimately works toward, I think, is an emphasis on the restorative virtues of sleep. Um, And so sleep, as it does in Hercules Furens, is an important form of cure and a therapy to the madness that Lear experiences when he tries to let go of sovereignty, but, but, but seems in some ways, uh, unable to let go of the sovereign cares that still are attached to his psychosomatic being. Um, so for me in this, uh, chapter, the, the kind of reconciliation scene with Cordelia is really important. Where Lear's doctors say he, you know, there there is a kind of um, cure that we can bring, and it's the most natural cure of all, which is sleep. And so then Cordelia, I think, acts as a kind of um, embodiment of the Stoic sage because she summons what she calls the unpublished virtues of the earth um, and asks that they sort of come to her father and cure him. Um, and relieve him of the harmful forms of distress and worry and madness uh, that I think are kind of residues from the burdens of state that King Lear has has had to maintain. Um, And sleep then becomes the only cure to this condition.
1: Uh, Vital Strife. Uh, I should also say great title.
0: Um... Thank
1: you. It uh, takes up uh, Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, um, and you identify a deep ambivalence around sleep in um, Spencer's poem. Uh, While previous scholars have suggested that sleep for Spencer is always corrupting or mostly corrupting of heroic virtue, you see a greater nuance in Spencer's representations of sleep. For instance, you locate a real difference between how sleep is thought of in book one of the fairy queen and book four of the same poem right uh
0: yeah that's right um i mean i think here of um the argument that various Spenserians have made about the ways that the poem exhibits a kind of dialectical thought and progress um you know and so i think maybe we could sort of um draw sleep into that sort of an argument in, in, in terms of seeing some of the differences between the way sleep's represented in book one versus book four. Um, but I think that, you know, in book one, arguably Spencer is, um, I think more deeply concerned with the paradox that I discussed earlier, right. That on the one hand, sleep seems to, um, throw you into this state of careless inattention. It makes you vulnerable, and in Christian political theology in particular, vulnerable to assaults from the devil. But at the same time, um, sleep is clearly also a kind of care, a care for the physical or bodily life that sustains us. And I think he uses Red Cross as a kind of um, paradigmatic example of this. Um, And ultimately, what he works towards in book one is a model of virtue and mutual care through the relationship between Red Cross and UNA, that's both Stoic inspired and I think presented as an alternative to what I would describe as the vigilant individualizing ethos of Pauline political theology, um, especially I, I, at least the way in the ways that Paul is taken up by Augustine, um, but then especially later uh, early modern Christian writers like Luther and Erasmus, because all these writers are going to emphasize. Um, as Paul does, the need to arise from spiritual slumber and stay vigilant. But I think for for Luther and Erasmus, um, it takes on an actual physical connotation, right? That sleep itself is a kind of threat to the humanist pursuit of of wisdom and virtue. Um, So here again, we see this, you know, kind of recurrence of this strong connection between wakefulness and the good. Now, I think, you know, Spencer being the good English humanist that he is, He's deeply familiar with all of these arguments, and he wants to, you know, give them some uh, sort of credence. But I think in the end, what he's more invested in in Book One is revealing the extent to which Red Cross simply must sleep, um, and that in fact his sleep um, can be seen as a, as a as embodying a kind of natural holiness that is firmly attached to his physical life. And so I think here in particular, Spencer's drawing implicitly on this Stoic theory of oikiosis because the Stoics argue that the, you know, the living creature, the living animal is naturally attached to this first principle of life and to its own unawareness of its own physical constitution. And I think that Spencer's suggesting that Red Cross's holiness, that he's attached to that as part of his physical constitution, much in a similar way. And, um, Yeah, I think the scene that really drives that point home is the moment in Archimago's cabin when Red Cross is said to be um, sort of nearly drowned in deadly sleep. And yet at the same time, I think Spencer is suggesting that this core of Christian Protestant virtue and therefore Red Cross's um, capacity to embody this allegory of holiness, that remains intact um, and what actually threatens Red Cross is when he wakes up and falls for the trick that Archimago has laid for him in the form of the false Una. And then he runs away and abandons Una. Right. So he abandoned his obligation of mutual care between Una. Um, so, you know, I think that um, and then Spencer is going to go on later in book one to suggest that Una, too, bears obligations of mutual care to Red Cross, which is why she watches over him. Uh, when he falls to the dragon fire, but is restored by the Holy Spring of life, right? Like while he's sort of sleeping this sleep of death that then becomes a rebirth, um, Una is watching and caring for him as she prays. Um, So that's the sort of um, dynamic that I see unfolding in in book one. In book four, it's a slightly different situation, because I think what Spencer's showing is um, when Sir Scudamore enters the house of care, right? Care is allegorized as this team of laboring blacksmiths. And so it's it's almost like a kind of proto-Marxist allegory um, in the sense that uh, Red Cross, or sorry, uh, Scudamore's sort of vital capacities, I think, are kind of being drawn out um, and uh, allegorized this form of um, incessant work, right? Or incessant labor. And I think Spencer is suggesting that the labors of self-care and heroic vigilance can take on this um, unhealthy and harmful form, right? When they are overemphasized, right? And 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 and, and when the kind of um, absolute connection between uh, wakefulness and the good, uh, or the, the connection between wakefulness and the good is understood in absolute terms. Um, so I think there are some you know, some interesting biopolitical implications here as well, because it seems like Scudamore's vital capacity is sort of imagined as the thing that actually fuels (laughs) through his insomnia, the labor that goes on in the house of care. Um, so I think this is, you know, on Spencer's part, a kind of prescient meditation, you know, on the sort of, um, biopolitical sharpening and, um, uh, sort of extraction of of surplus value through through the domination of labor uh, that we see in modernity.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that reading of the House of Care is is almost like a, um, a allegory dragged to the extremes of what it can hold and contain. That's that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, you, uh, your fifth chapter is on Paradise Lost, uh, and you're reading, um, sleep in that poem allows for a kind of sensual and spiritual ascendance, but it also lets one's guard down against sin and spiritual corruption. How does Milton fit within this, uh, complex history that, that you weave in vital strife of uh, vitalist thought, stoic philosophy, and Christian theology?
0: Right. Well... In terms of some of the, the sort of philosophical principles that animate Paradise Lost and, and Milton's sort of turn toward vitalism later in his career there, and also in Doctrina Christiana, I mean, I, I think, um, and I mean, you know, you make these kinds of arguments and you know that the Miltonists are just waiting... <laughs> Sharpening their knives in the corner. <laughs> um, the, the Miltonists are always there. they they're yes, always they are always reading. there and always yeah, absolutely. And I you know I will say I am no Miltonist, but I love Milton. Um, and um, when I read those later works, to me, knowing Milton's vast learning and knowledge, right, and his reading of you know ancient Greek and Latin texts, and also. Explicit engagement with Seneca, which, for instance, actually, um, it's worth mentioning here that in The Tenure of Kings and Magistrates, Milton quotes from Seneca's Hercules Furens. Right. So it's a play he's very familiar with. But anyway, I think that Milton's theories of matter and this kind of architecture of the cosmos are actually really influenced and shaped by the Stoic theories of matter um, that... uh, hold that, um, there is no separation or strict separation between mind and body. Um, there's no thing like, there's no kind of Cartesian dualism, um, that nature and the entire cosmos is alive. Um, and I think that in the kind of prelapsarian world that Milton imagines, I, I think, um, you know, is very consistent with, with stoic principles, um, and the stoic scale of nature and so forth. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, in, in a kind of more literary sense, perhaps um, that Milton's really picking up on a lot of the currents that I'm tracking in Spencer's Fairy Queen um, as he's constructing his own vitalist vision of sleep and ethical care as a synthesis of Stoic oikiosis and uh, Christian redemption. Um, And I explore those ideas primarily through Adam and Eve, and what I understand to be their sort of natural attachments to a form of virtue that is psychosomatic and and physiological. Um, And uh, I see that unfolding in scenes of awakening. So for instance, when Adam, you know, kind of wakes up for the first time and then falls back asleep, I sort of, um, you know, track how I see that as, 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 as having deeply stoic resonances. Um, but also in the kind of developing relations of care between them and in the way that care takes on a um, new condition of labor, suffering, distress, and woe, you know, in the Pope's Lapsarian form. Now, interestingly enough, I think that maybe uh, um, the chapter's most unique argument, which is connected to this idea of, uh, of a post-lapsarian care or fallen care, and so far as I'm aware, no Milton has made this argument yet, um, is that in Paradise Lost, Milton essentially connects the condition of insomnia to his ontology of evil as privation. Um, so in this moment in book five, which Raphael, in which Raphael is narrating to Adam the story of, the, of Lucifer's fall, right? Um, the moment where that happens, where Lucifer um, transitions into Satan is precisely the moment at which Milton describes Lucifer as remaining awake, um, despite the fact that the entire rest of the angelic host is deeply in this bliss, blissful harmonic state of slumber, right? So like Lucifer sort of manages to individuate himself in what I argue is a kind of deficient mode of being, a form of privation that is insomnia, right? So it's this kind of form of wakefulness that is not actualizing a good, but a form of wakefulness that is instead a privation of the good that wakefulness uh, usually actualizes. And so in this sense, it's, 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 an, it's a privation of insomnia, And so I think Milton imagines insomnia as the origin of evil. Um, And uh, it becomes a pestilent force of negation or perversion, right, that first emerges in this scene of malignant wakefulness embodied by Satan and then begins to circulate across the cosmos in various ways, ultimately, you know, finding itself uh, in Adam and Eve's Bower, um, and then radically transforming uh, the conditions of, of waking human life.
1: Malignant wakefulness, that, that is a term I'm going to carry forward. That's excellent. Um, let's, uh, finally, let's turn to um, Margaret Cavendish, who has an unorthodox view of sleep that you argue is um, both challenging the Cartesian mechanical view of the body and the Epicurean vision of, of lifeless atomism. Um, What do you see as Cavendish's most important contribution to, to this crux of sleep and care?
0: Right. So, um, yeah, so I think that, um, so the, the, the sort of simplest way to answer the first part of the question here would be that um, Cavendish is taking aim at, I think, um, Hobbes and Descartes, especially, but, but other thinkers as well who imagine that sleep involves some kind of, um, cessation of activity of the soul, right? Cavendish wants to say that, um, that can't be the case because what she describes as sense and reason are activities that must always be ongoing. Um, because they can't have a kind of um, beginning and then an ending and then a new beginning, right? That these these are these are and she has all kinds of reasons for for saying this, but that's the that's the basic point. So she thinks that even in sleep, sensation and reason must continue, right? But um, more particularly, the way that she fills out the really fascinating philosophical. Um, world that for her, you know, supports this idea concerning sleep is deeply stoic. In fact, I think that she is the most explicitly neo-stoic of all the writers that I discuss in the book. Um, and I'm not the first person to make that claim by by any stretch. Um, actually, the, it's the, the philosopher Eileen O'Neill who Taught at UMass uh, at, at UMass um, Amherst, right in the philosophy department for many years. She sadly passed away, um, and uh, but but she her work on Cavendish um, really shows that Cavendish is deeply indebted to the Stoics, even though Cavendish never acknowledges that fact. And you know, to be fair, that's in part, as Eileen O'Neill argues, because Cavendish is wary of. Being treated uncharitably (laughs) by mostly male philosophers, right, who are going to accuse her of unoriginality and so forth. Um, And I'm not trying to do that at all in the book by showing these deep connections to Stoicism. In fact, what I'm arguing, and this gets to the second part of your question, is that um, Cavendish actually radicalizes the Stoic theory of oikiosis in a really fascinating way because you know, the Stoics are going to say that um, oikiosis is something that living animals do. Um, and they, uh, they think it involves, you know, this kind of um, awareness of one's own constitution as a physical living being, right? Now, Cavendish is going to argue that every part of the cosmos down all the way to infinity so infinitesimally small and and also to the sort of vastest bodies in, in 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 space and in the heavens that they all participate in reason and sensation they all have the ability to sense and reason and in this way i think um she's arguing effectively that um, oikaosis is something that happens among all the parts of the cosmos, right? Um, and so she's also uh, very explicitly drawing in her theory um, of matter on this idea of um, finely uh, blended mixtures um, of, of, of numa and corporeal matter which is the kind of um, pillar of Stoic cosmology or the kind of first basis of, of the Stoic theory of corporeality, Cavendish is going to argue that um, in the same way, um, so the dense corporeal part of matter is subtly and finally blended with the part of matter that is able to sense and the part of matter that is able to reason. And so every particle or part of the cosmos has all three of these capacities so finely blended that you can never go down small enough to find a part of the cosmos that doesn't embody all three of those virtues or or abilities. Um, And I think she's clearly thinking about stoic oikiosis here, largely because the text that Cavendish acknowledges in her observations upon experimental philosophy as being her source book for ideas and passages from ancient, ancient Greek and Roman philosophy is Thomas Stanley's history of philosophy, which is like this giant compendium of um, you know uh, passages that Stanley himself uh, often translates from the original Greek or Latin. And there's one passage in particular from Diogenes Laertius, which is attributed originally to Chrysippus, who was the second head of the Stoic school, and it talks about the first appetite of living creatures being to preserve themselves through care, right, to care for themselves. And so, you know, given that Cavendish was drawing on this text, um, you know, for her uh, knowledge of Stoicism, which she again explicitly states in, in the book, um, yeah, I think that she was um, influenced by this Stoic theory of oikosis in her idea that sensation and reason must continue even while we sleep. And every part of the cosmos does that. So for her, all matter belongs in its own place or its own home, right? In the cosmos. And it's aware of its place within these infinite mixtures of nature. Um, and so every entity in the vast infinity of the natural world, um, Manifests a type of oikiosis in sensing, thinking, and caring for its own place in ways that are appropriate to the type of entity that it is.
1: I'd like to turn to writing. Um, I'd like to ask guests about their process. Um, what do you? How, how do you approach writing and revision? Um, do you have certain techniques for honing your prose or or developing a style? Um, unique to a particular project?
0: Um, look, this is kind of funny because I think this is a great question to ask. And I think, unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for it. <laughs> so while, while I've probably talked too much <laughs> in response to all the other questions, this is one I, I've thought about. But, you know, I don't have great tips to share. And I don't even know if I can describe my process because it just Feels to me like my process is often so haphazard and full of struggle. Um, You know, maybe this is connected to why I titled the book Vital Strife, (laughs) because (laughs) that sort of seems to me to articulate what writing is like for me. Um, I will say this, though, Um, it gets a little bit easier as I get older. Um, But for me, constant revision, you know, I can't even. I can't even, I mean, I did so many revisions, you know, uh, to get this book into, into the final form. And, uh, you know, I, you one often hears that truism that projects are only abandoned, never actually completed. And that feels very real to me in, in, in some way. So, um, You know, I wish I had a better answer and some more constructive or helpful things to share <laughs> about my process. But, but I, unfortunately, I don't. <laughs>
1: Okay. Or, or, well, let me ask this: Do you? Um, I, I've often been inspired by the the, the phrase "the inner censoriate," s- or you know, the the kind of reader that you're writing for. Like, do you visualize a person, or is there a a particular reader you're trying to reach or or um, impress? But, or?
0: You, you know, actually, that that's actually very helpful because um, I would say yes. I have maybe a group of what I would consider to be my ideal readers, who I think are scholars in the field whose work I most admire and see my own as, um, in some sense, being in dialogue with. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, and in, 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 in this book, I think that, you know, those those individuals were really, I think, probably first and foremost, Julia Reinhardt Lupton and, and her work on Shakespeare and, um, you know, Aristotelian virtue, as well as Agamben. Um, I think also um, Graham Hamill uh, and Chris Pye are uh, two, you know, um, people whose work has been a real tremendous influence on my own and who I'm sort of imagining in some ways you know as, as having a seat at the table um and uh yeah i think you you know the, um there are others um at various points along the way who who kind of come up but i do think it's helpful to ask yourself you know who are the people whose work has most shaped my own thinking right and who and, and whose work I, I i really admire in ways that um you know, can then lead you to think that you aren't just, uh, writing, you know, to this sort of like empty, absent, you know, idea in some way. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, the I
1: audience, this kind of vague, right. ambiguous.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And then, you know, there are moments along the way where I think it's, uh, you know, maybe I'm, uh, writing in a, Oh, also, I guess I, I didn't mention Gordon Teske and Stephen Fallon, but those are also two, especially in the Milton chapter, you know, um, but but then there are moments where I do start to think more generally, you know, of course, when you write the introduction and you're revising the introduction to the book, then I sort of am thinking more like the field at large, you know, trying to really do my best to draw as many people as I can over to what I'm trying to advocate for, which is this very new way of thinking about Stoicism and its reception in the early modern period and what it might mean for early modernists, but also humanists more broadly, you know, to uh, take Stoic ideas up in a new way.
1: Now that this book is out in the world, um... This is my usual final question, and it's probably the most loathed uh, or the most reviled question I ask. Uh, what, what are you turning your attention to now that this book is published? What, what's the next project or scholarly interest that you're pursuing? That's,
0: that's very interesting to me that it's usually the most loathed because I'm actually happy to get this question. Um, yeah, and uh, I actually have two book projects that I'm working on right now. Um, and they're both uh, closely related um, because they're both on ideas of endlessness and infinity um, that emerge you know, from two very different contexts. So the first book is on literary responses um, to the early stages of capitalism and discourses of political economy. Um, and the, the second book um, is... Uh, on the philosophical and scientific emergence of cosmological notions of infinitude that uh, occur along micro and macroscopic planes. So there's a way in which I think you can see the seeds of both books, you know, in my, in my first book, you know, um, the first, the, 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 the first current new book project is, is titled Endless Goods, Early Modern Virtue and Political Economy. And it's going to be focusing primarily on drama, uh, but also we'll look at some you know, uh, essays and writings on oikonomia from the early modern period, but also the ancient world. And it's sort of going to be looking at how dramatists are envision- envisioning the nature of the good life um, over the course of the 17th century as capitalism begins fundamentally to transform conceptions of virtue and value. Um, and uh, and you have the kind of um, birth of this new social science known as political economy and, and political economic thought that tries to sort of reorganize um, the state and the state's relationship to uh, the life and labor of its inhabitants. Uh, and I'm planning chapters on... Um, Kidd, Marlowe, Montaigne, Shakespeare, Johnson, Milton, and Ben uh, for that book. And then my second current book project is called Early Modern Infinity and the Global Poetic Imagination. So this is where I'm kind of moving into a a kind of um, global global early modernity as um, area of focus. So it's taking a historical and transnational comparative approach to ideas of infinity in early modern works of literature, philosophy, and and science that in some way valorize poesis and the world making capacities of the imagination. Um, and so there's going to be some, you know, early material on things like Babylonian, uh, practice of astrology, um, the, uh, Vedic, uh, roots of ancient Greek skepticism, um, Jewish Kabbalah, and also um, infinity in the medieval Islamic thought of Avicenna and so forth. But then the book, uh, I think in its main focus will still be on, you know, 16th, 17th, 18th century works. So I'm thinking in particular of um, like a chapter on Milton's Paradise Lost um, and its cosmological and astronomical notions of infinity and how they square with the 17th century transcription of the Mayan creation story, uh, which is known as the Popol Vuh, um, which is a much older text, but it didn't, it was first transcribed by um, a Spanish priest and colonist. Um, and then um, I think there will also be a chapter on Leibniz's monadology and uh, the form of uh, lyrical poetry from various global traditions, um, maybe including the Dell of Delhi, and, um, he's a really interesting poet that um, Tim Harrison um, and Jane Mickelson have recently done some really interesting work on that was published in modern philology. Um, So, yeah, so I, so those are my two current book projects. I'm actually really eager to get started on them.
1: All right. That's very exciting. We'll look forward to those projects um, as they come out. Thank you so much uh, for joining the pod, Ben.
0: You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me, John.